Welcome to the All About Alts podcast, where we explore the world of alternative investing to help you find financial independence. Join our host, Newview Trust's president, Jason DeBono, as he covers a variety of topics with different guest speakers to discuss tax and alternative investing strategies. It is never too late to start taking control of your financial future, and we are so excited for you to be joining us for this opportunity to hear from some of the best in the business. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the All About Alts podcast. I am Jason DeBono. I am your host today, and I am joined by Shannon Robnett, a total wealth of wisdom. But Shannon Robnett runs Shannon Robnett Industries, second generation developer, builder, fourth generation realtor. So I got a feeling we're going to hear a lot about the real estate world today. So Shannon, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. Happy to be here. Cool. Well, let's dig right in and let's talk a little bit about this second generation, you know, developer, builder. Take us all the way back, kind of walk us through and and tell us a little bit about kind of what that means and where you, from a personal standpoint, sit in that builder developer side. You know, I grew up in a house that every Saturday and Sunday was spent cleaning job sites and putting in sprinklers and, you know, laying sod. And so I wasn't real thrilled about that. And when I graduated high school, I was going to go into computer information systems. So I went to college. And I was watching my younger brother build houses during that same duration. I was waiting tables in a coffee shop, trying to pay my car insurance, make about $45,000 in, was that 95, 94? And I realized very quickly that computer information systems wasn't going to do that for me. And so I went back and I started building residential houses and transitioned into commercial real estate, grew a company that, you know, we did a lot of things from city halls to police stations, medical facilities schools, gymnasiums, all that kind of stuff. And every time I got done with a job, I saw that my paycheck stopped. And I was watching the people that I'd built for continue to own that. I watched my father retire at 50 on cash flow. And, you know, I began to look at that. And I built my first building in 2001. And, and here it is 21 years later. And I still have, you know, two of the original six tenants and they've continued to pay the rent on time. And, you know, one of the businesses even sold three times, but that tenant, you know, it's a gelato ice cream manufacturing facility and you can't really just move an 18 by 24 walk-in freezer. So, you know, I began to go that route and I began to partner with some people and and do, you know, a deal with a guy. And pretty soon the plans that were on my desk, the projects we were taking down was just a little bit too big for us. So we started raising capital and syndicating and that's just kind of opened up a whole nother realm to us. And we currently have about 400 units of apartments under construction and multiple industrial projects. So that's kind of how I got here. And it was just kind of, you know, a natural transition, taking one step and solving that problem and then taking the next step and then solving that problem. Well, it's great that you had that realization, you know, early on that, you know, you get into the career part of it. And sometimes it's hard to make that transition. We talk to a lot of people, you know, and that's always one of the questions we do spend a lot of time on is how did you get out of X, right? And into real estate, but you've really been dabbling in it almost your whole life, but certainly early on. So you're building homes, you're building, you know, buildings, you're building multifamily, you're building office, you're building industrial. Is everything that you're doing ground up development, is that kind of typically your approach? Or are you doing some other stuff as well? We do a, a multitude of things, but you know, if a deal pencils, a deal pencils, right? The multifamily ground up development, you know, that's a 36 to 48 month process, right? There's no cash flow during that time. There's tremendous appreciation, but that doesn't fit every investor. So we looked at that and we said, okay, well, we've got a lot of knowledge in areas like multifamily. I built a lot of industrial. And so we start looking at deals that pencil that are for sale. 
and we're in, you know, five different markets across the nation and and we see where you can still add value, you can still manage something better, you can still improve something, you can still do those things, but doing it in a way that works for your investors become kind of the core of what we do is looking at it and making sure that we're fulfilling the needs that they have in what we're pulling across the table. Well, and I'm sure your, you know, real estate development background makes you a better buyer, even of stuff that's already built. I assume you can go in and see where corners were cut or see where, you know, there are some value add opportunities, true value add opportunities and, you know, from a development standpoint. So that's a nice lens to be looking through. It's also made me a stingier buyer too, because I always look at it and go, man, I could build it for cheaper than this. But, <laughs> but you know, that really speaks to the testament of what the real value add is. The value is the tenants, right? The value is the relationship that you have with them and how long are they in there for? What's your turnover rate? You know, what's your flip cost? You know, what are you dealing with that? And so you, you really get an appreciation for that balance between vacancy and occupancy and cost and all of those kinds of things to really understand is this something we need to add value to? Will it pay off if we go in and spend $20,000 a unit or reface the building? You know, So it definitely has its pros and cons, but at the end of the day, it's been a huge value to me because that's obviously the hardest part is finding the the property, the project, and, and doing the ground up development from the beginning. Yeah. Well, you know, and I love how you kind of, you know, highlighted something a lot of people don't think about on the development side is, you know, it, it's a lot of work and effort to develop and it can be a great strategy and structure, but it isn't for everybody. There is a quite a tail, you know, on a development deal in terms of getting property, getting it, you know, to be able to be zoned, you know, getting plans approved, getting all the necessary entitlements. And then obviously you've got bricks and sticks and all of that comes before you actually earn a dollar. And so, yeah, for some people, that's a tough place to invest. Yeah. But, you know, there's balances to that, too, because the bank wants to ensure that the project's successful. So one of the things that we always figure into our development budget is the interest carry, right? And what that is going to take and how long the project's going to go and, you know, making sure that you're overcompensating for that. And then the other thing that we're doing is we're always developing usually to a seven and a half or an eight cap, which in the market that we just exited where we had, you know, stuff selling at a three cap on the on the real estate side it made for some large profit margins, but there's also a substantially large protection to that development side that the banks, you know, the last thing they want back is a half finished project. Right. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the market today. And we're going to talk a little bit more from an investment, you know, strategy here in just a bit. But I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, what impact, you know, you mentioned kind of your underwriting guidelines, leaving certainly some margin there, you know, you hope for the best, but it sounds like you're penciling for the worst. What are you seeing from a cost standpoint, you know, have in a development project, we've seen lumber go through the roof, you know, it's kind of made a soft landing back somewhere in the moderately realistic world. But how are you managing that? What are you seeing? What are some of the things that, you know, posing some challenges and what's creating some opportunities? Well, you know, the reality is a supply constraint has been our biggest issue to overcome. When we do a large scale project like this, the day we start is the day we sign 90% of the contracts. So we're fixed in on our cost. It may take three years to get there, but the plumber's locked in on his contract from the beginning. And so we've got some things that we can control. We can't control concrete pricing. We can't control lumber pricing. But you know, this is where speed makes sense, right? The faster you can go, the less interest you burn. And there's ways to mitigate that. And it's not always cheapest bid that wins because you know, you're talking about timelines to go with that. But 
we've seen a lot of things change. I mean, we've seen, you know, prices on commodities come down, but services go back up, you know, with inflation happening, workers need to be paid more to maintain the same standard of living. So we're constantly dealing with stuff like that, but we've mitigated as much of, of that as possible with our contracts early on, and then just making sure that we're using reputable contractors, things like that. So that we can do everything we can to make sure that we've taken all of the bugs that could happen out of the process. And then you're right with your underwriting, you can make this look like a 26% return, or you can make it look like a very realistic 16% return with lots of opportunity for life to happen, interest rates to rise, cap rates to change, you know, supply chain issues to happen and rushes need to be put on things. And so I think that that's back to my two generations, my 28 years in the business, where I can really relate to that and go, man, I'd really like to get you a 26% return. And we do that quite often. But my underwriting shows that we're, you know, we're aiming for that 15, 16% with an opportunity to impress you instead of shooting for 26 and coming in at 24 and a half and having everybody try and hang you from the street post. Well, and you know, it's interesting. We talked a few episodes back, you know, about expectations and, you know, it it is really hard. The the problem that good quality, you know, syndicators and developers or whatever the project is have is that you do one project and return 25%, you just set a floor that everyone assumes every deal always will do 25%. So, you know, I think this market getting a little bit sideways, not all, you know, areas of the market will be affected, but it is a good reality check for a lot of investors. I remember the days and I still subscribe to the philosophy of if you get me double digits, I'm elated. I'd love to make 25% on every deal, but if I just shoot for 10, you know, I'm going to have a really healthy portfolio in the long run. Well, and you know, the other thing that a lot of people don't look at is, you know, they look strictly at the return, right? And they go, you know, I'm getting a 25% return. You got to factor in, how are you getting that return? Are you in a tax advantage situation or are you taking that 25% cutting off, you know, 35 or 40% for uncle Sam and then trying to reinvest, right? And so there's a lot of that where we pay a lot of attention probably more attention to how the deal is going to get done than the underwriting. Because the reality is if if I can add 15% benefit from a tax situation to your equation, then the reality is you're going to wind up with a 10% plus a 15% savings. I don't know how you calculate that, Jason, but to me, that's 25%, right? And if you're paying attention to those kinds of things, then you can make sure that you're really positioning yourself to win in the biggest way possible in multiple categories across what is investing. And a lot of people don't focus on that. Yeah. Well, obviously on the tax advantage side, you're speaking my language, but I love that you guys look into that. It's, you know, I think there's a a big gap and, you know, people try to make money, which is great. Everybody should try to do that, but the wealthy don't try to make money, right? Right. The wealthy try to build wealth and and you build wealth on both sides of the equation. And and I'm totally with you. If I can make 15% tax-free, it's better than 20% taxable. You know, Absolutely. I'm going to come way ahead. So now if I can get my 20 and keep it tax-free, right? <laughs> now we're really starting right. to have our right. cake and eat it too. But you know, the reality is you talk about the compounding effect and Warren Buffett calls it the eighth wonder of the world. And if you can take that, you know, that additional 5% for 10 years and continue to reinvest that, you're not 50% ahead because you went up 5% the first year and reinvested that amount. And then you went up 5% another the second year. You've continued to reinvest that. You'll find yourself, you know, over 125% 
ahead of where you would have been if you'd have paid the taxes on it because of the compounding effect of of just paying attention to your taxes. Yeah, I, I share this a lot in uh, at the risk of beating a dead horse. If you take a dollar and you double it every year for 20 years, you'll end up with the gap between doing that in a tax advantaged account versus doing it in a taxable account at a 25% tax rate. The gap is nearly a million dollars. Right. So that means you get a million dollars more for the same investment, same time commitment, same risk profile. That's building wealth. And, you know, the reality is how many people don't pay attention to that? Don't they think they don't care about that? I'm not going to go to this tax seminar. I'm not going to learn about this stuff. You know, I'm not going to buy into these gurus or whatever. And yet they're, I mean, it's a million bucks. It's not a small amount and nobody's investing a dollar. You know, nobody's doing that. They're investing much more than that, but they're not investing the time to truly understand it and multiply that to really make a difference in their life. Yeah, you nailed it. I've had, you know, people that have said, oh, you're going to charge me a couple hundred dollars, you know, to custody this account. I'll, I'll just do it another way. And I'm thinking, how much tax are you going to pay? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're, you're probably going to pay 10 or 20 grand in tax and you won't pay a couple hundred bucks to do this in a tax-free arrangement. But, you know, those are the people that they'll make money. Yeah. It's just, they'll miss the mark on building wealth when it's- Well, all and that's the difference done. between leading a horse to water, realizing the horse is stupid and then beating the horse. You know, that's right. the beating the dead horse, you know? And you're right. I mean, there's some people out there that it's mind boggling how they choose to do it. You know, there are harder ways. Why did you have to pick the hardest? Yeah. Well, the, you know, the beauty of what we do is we continue to try to educate and hopefully, you know, people along the way realize that a small investment of time and knowledge and understanding and maybe even a a monetary investment will yield them the best returns they've ever gotten. And it's not the return that matters. It's actually keeping it all when it's all said. Absolutely right. Well, I want to dig in a little bit deeper after our little quirky question of the day segment, which we're going to to step over here in just a second. But I do want to dig deeper a little bit into kind of investment thesis. You know, what are you seeing in the market? You know, what are the asset classes? So we'll get right to that. But we are going to hop over to our quirky questions of the day. So Maggie, our producer, is coming by with the envelopes. Remember, if you do have any quirky questions that you guys want to add to the list, you can email Maggie at newviewtrust.com. Maggie with a Y, newview with a U. All right, Shannon, you ready? I'm ready. All right. What is something that you just recently realized that you are embarrassed by that you didn't realize earlier? You know, probably recently in the last little bit, I think that You know, it's one of those things that the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And I've been looking at some different things and, you know, I've always wanted a sports car, you know, but I've always told myself, you have to pay for that. You're going to, you know, and you can't write it off and all those things. And, and then I realized there's this funny little app called Turo. And so I can now take and buy my sports car, put it on the Turo app, write the whole thing off in year one, take that for a tax advantage and let somebody else drive it a couple of days a month. And I feel really dumb because Turo's been around for three years. (laughs) I love that. I guess color me dumb as well, because I never thought about that. But you just gave me an idea. I appreciate that. Well, and the worst part is I I do it with airplanes already. I have a flight school for that reason. And, you know, we write off airplanes and I never thought to do it with the sports car I wanted. How cool. I like it. Question number two, real straightforward one. Is water wet? Yes. Yes. Okay. 
so, you know, some of these questions you do have to kind of think yeah. through a little bit. Uh, yeah, I was wondering where the trick was in that. I mean, last time I spilled it on myself, it was wet. It was wet this morning in the shower. <laughs> there you go. Water is wet. All right, question number three. If animals could talk, which one would be the rudest? You know, I would think probably the rhinoceros. I mean, okay. you know, it just they kind of strike me as a rude animal. You know, not that I've met many rhinoceroses here. <laughs> is it rhinoceroses or is it rhinoceri? I don't know, you know. What happens when you I'm get going rhinos? <laughs> I'm going rhinos. So, well, you know, there's no doubt. It's amazing how you can look at an animal and and it it just puts that vibe off. I'm with you. Although the other one to that that is, I think it's got to be cats too. You know, you got there's something about cats. They're just naturally rude. They're aloof. They're smug. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I was also thinking like geese. You know, because they attack yeah. you. But then, you know, is that the geese of New York? You know, I mean, I don't know. You know. <laughs> well, there's plenty of animals to choose from, but we've got it on the books as the rhinoceros. So good choice, Shannon. Well, thank you for participating. Thank you to our listeners for keep feeding us the questions. Every time I pull an envelope, I always smirk a little bit as I'm pulling it out and starting to see some of these questions come through. So it is fun for me and, and thank you for participating. Let's get back to it and let's dig in on this you know, kind of real estate market today, you know, you've got 28 years of, of watching this through your own lens and, you know, of an investment world. What are you seeing today? Let's start with challenges. What are you seeing in your world today? You know, maybe outside of the obvious, like interest rates, that sort of thing. But what are you kind of seeing as some of those challenges that are presenting themselves today? Well, you know, Jason, the reality is these are the interest rates that I've worked with most of my career, Right. So we had a unicorn situation where we had these beautiful interest rates. And if you weren't locking them in at the longest term you could possibly get, I think you kind of are realizing now that that wasn't a great move. Yeah. But the reality is this is what we're used to. This is what I'm used to. I'm used to 6 7% on the commercial side. I'm used to 35 to 40% loan to value, loan to cost. So I've always kind of underwritten this way and I've always played this way. But some of the challenges that we're really seeing is sellers are still looking at 2022 pricing and we're firmly into 2023 and trying to explain the correlation between interest rate and price gets to be a little mind numbing at, at times because the reality is they're looking at price. When they bought it, they looked at cash flow, but their whole position is switched. Now they're looking at price only because they're exiting it and they're not taking that into consideration as far as what the next guy has to do to achieve cash flow, which is why we buy real estate, right? It's why we focus on that asset is because somebody else is not only paying the tab, but there's cash flow involved with it as well. Yeah. Investors, sellers, you know, all still have, you know, a, a very hard time letting go of maybe some of the bull runs that, that we saw. And, you know, not to say there's not great value and great deals and, and great return opportunity in real estate, but some of that stuff does uh, have to norm out a little bit and, and rising costs should naturally bring down some of the costs of sellers, but we hear that a lot is, you know, it's, it's finding the right deals, you know, getting a seller to not only be willing to sell, but, but also to be open and understanding of the market conditions for the new buyer. So, you know, obviously challenges are always there. And, and I love what you said about going back, you know, we have such short-term memories, right? We all think that interest rates are 2% and 4% is normal, but yeah, I mean, I remember the first house that I bought, I paid seven and a half percent interest and I was yeah. tickled. You, you know, know, they I used to say, if it's under it eight, great. don't hesitate. You know, yeah. that kind of rhymes with, if the glove doesn't fit, you must have quit, right? But I mean, and you might be too young to remember that one, but. Oh, but uh, That was an OJ. Uh, that was OJ, yeah. OJ trial, no. I remember that vividly. Yeah, but you know, the funny thing is, is real estate 
is cyclical. I think all assets are cyclical. Gold and silver fluctuates. You know, Bitcoin's been up and down. You know, the stock market's always in flux for some reason. And there's always those guys that buy at, you know, the top of whatever market, not really understanding their asset class, not understanding why it's there. And, and I think that's a little bit easier to get caught up in, in the stock market because it really is more of a supply and demand and, you know, FOMO kind of an environment where real estate has some intricacies and, you know, gold and silver has some reasons why it does what it does. But, you know, a lot of that is understanding why you're doing it and understanding what your value proposition is to yourself to get there. And if you're really sticking to an investment thesis that makes sense, that makes it plausible for you to understand why you're doing every single deal, you know, people that bought real estate in 2021 may have been really close to the top of the market. But if they did the right things with their deal and they put permanent financing on it and they've got cash flow, what's happening now doesn't necessarily affect them. Maybe they can't exit the deal right now for the profit margins that they wanted. And maybe they're having to look instead of a four-year window, they're looking at a 10-year window. But then again, what's wrong with that? If you're doing what the investment thesis is, it's a lot easier to understand how that's replicatable and how you can stay safe. Yeah. Well, you're, you know, it is, it's something that you bring up a really good point, you know, is if you underwrite it right, the market conditions were what the market conditions were when you bought it. And if they're right, they'll still be good market conditions. Now, whether the market changes and maybe causes you to have to, you know, put a little bit longer, you know, hold time. But I really like, you know, kind of thinking it through from a, the deal has to fit. And if you put the benchmarks in place, you can kind of sidestep some of these challenges that we're seeing today. And I think what we all know, what's creating any sort of potential issue or risk for people holding property today is that they just weren't prepared to ever hold it. You know, they thought they'd get in, they thought they'd get out, which is fine. It's a great strategy, but you, you always have to kind of look and say, what if? And I think there's a lot of underwriting that never really had that what if line right. into it. And, you know, when you're going after the appreciation play, there's nothing wrong with that, but you have to understand that you really need multiple exits. And we see this a lot in the stock market because, you know, you're buying a stock for appreciation, unless you're getting a dividend stock or, you know, playing with bonds or things like that, you're really looking at buying at price X and you're selling at X plus 10, right? And that's the whole thesis behind that. And that works sometimes, but that's one of the beautiful things about being involved in real estate is yes, it, it does appreciate but it appreciates because the rent goes up. It appreciates because the cash flows goes up. So there's multiple things that can take care of your asset before it has to become you taking care of your asset. Yeah, we love real estate for that very reason. And uh, there is nothing wrong with the stock market. It's great. I think you know the hardest part I see in the stock market is it's really hard to be fundamentally sound in the market. We're at a point now where we have the highest number of zombie companies you know, companies that still don't have profit. And I'm thinking to myself, how can this company with no profit, you know, be worth way more as not just the stock price, but the total market value is worth more than Walmart, who has one of the greatest businesses that's really never been under any threat. It's, you know, it's, it's just about recession proof. They turn 15 to 25% profit margins every year. And you're valuing companies on this new and unique product they haven't even sold enough to turn a profit, you know, and you look at like DocuSign. I mean, here's a company that I completely understand a lot of the hype through COVID, but they had the greatest opportunity to accelerate their number of users faster than 
ever. And they still can't turn a profit. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if they can't turn a profit when all eyes were on them for two full years, how are they going to turn a profit in five years, seven years, 10 years? It just baffles me. Well, and, you know, Zoom did the same thing, right? And yep. and again, you're getting into that, well, I'm selling because I made 10% on mine and it's time to sell. And you're buying because you want to make 10% also. There's no underlying fundamental because the bottom line says that the P&E ratio is in the toilet and, you know, there's no cash flow. And unless they continue to get injections of capital and cash and things like that, they're going to continue to have problems. So what are they going to do? Continue to, you know, add more stock to the pool and, and do those things that devalue the other investors. And at the end of the day, you're holding a piece of paper or something in your Charles Schwab account, you know, yep. there's no value to that. No. And when you come back to real estate, you know, the fundamental price of the asset fluctuating, while it's important, it, it pales in comparison to cash flow. Absolutely. Right? So Absolutely. you can still make money while the property may be losing some value in, in the overall market, whether it's for interest rates or cap rates, it doesn't matter. And still end up making a nice 10, 15% return year over year over year on the cash flow from that property. Yeah. Well, and what would you rather have? A, a steady 10 or 15% a year or, you know, throw a couple hundred bucks at, at DocuSign and hope that 10 years from now that thing explodes and you're able to get money back. In the meantime, you're it's a total crapshoot. Yep. We're obviously on the real estate side of, of the equation, but yeah. you know, I do think for so many people, we, you know, our goal with this podcast really is just to help people, you know, hear some things that are a little bit different. And I'd imagine there's people listening today that have a stock portfolio, right? Of stock sponsors and mutual right. funds. They probably don't even know what those stocks are, what they do, what's you know, they just either bought them because the Yahoo Finance page said it or Jim right. Kramer yelled booyah you know, and, and, right. and threw a cow under his leg or something. But, you know, they're not buying anything for the sake of this is good because they're buying it because, you know, it's a little of the greater fool theory. Right. No. And I, I think I saw that episode where he tossed the cow, but, you know, it is because you're betting on so many external factors that have nothing to do with you that you have zero control over. You don't even know what markets you're in. You can't check the fundamentals of how is that business plan being executed like you can with real estate. And you have it, the, you know, especially with multifamily, you have the basic human need at your fingertips that everybody will always need housing and they will always need Walmart, you know? Yeah. Well, we're certainly on the same page on that. And and I love looking and talking real estate and, and because it does, it continues to remind everybody, self-included, that man, the right real estate in any market, in any conditions can be successful. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, today's market, right? What are you eyeballing, Shannon? You know, what do you think is penciling out a little bit nicer maybe than other asset classes looking forward over the next three to five years? Well, you know, I've done a lot of industrial in my life. And the thing that I really like about industrial, especially in inflationary markets, you know, property taxes are going up. I think, you know, insurance, everybody's clamoring that insurance is going up 30 to 40% across the board. You know, even water delivery in our area is taking, you know, record jumps because of the infrastructure that's needed to be put in. But when you're dealing with an industrial asset class, that is a triple net lease. And the beauty of the triple net lease is all of those expenses are passed through to the tenant. So, you know, if your rent is $1.20, you're going to have a triple net of probably 25, 26 cents on that. So the tenant is paying both of those fees to you. And at the end of the year, you reconcile that. You look at it, you go, well, it was a 28 cent a month triple net. So I got to bill you the other two cents. 
and we're raising our mark going forward to 29. So you can really look at it and go, this is like super easy for me to look at and go, my rent is my cash flow, right? And so now I just have to protect against keeping those tenants, but you're also dealing with tenants that have multi-year leases, right? And you're dealing with business people. When a person looks at it, they go, well, my rent just went up 50 bucks. I can move down the street. It's only the weekend. Let's do it. Or you're looking at, you know, a guy that's got a fencing company or a tech company or, you know, manufacturing of some sort. They've got to stop production. They've got to take their employees. They've got to move all of that stuff. It's very expensive. So tenants tend to be very, very sticky. And you're dealing with a product that, you know, is really resistant because more small businesses are started in the times of recession than anywhere else in history. And it's been proven over and over again. So being in that industrial space for us has been something that we've been in a lot, but it's really starting to shine. The other funny thing about industrial is it tends to trade at a little higher cap rate than multifamily because multifamilies, everybody's darling child. You get, you know, Brandon talking, Beardy Brandon talking about, you know, you house hack into this and then you do this and everybody wants to know, you know, fourplex, then, you know, 16 plex, then whatever, where industrial tends to be maybe, you know, a small industrial is maybe a $5 million deal. That puts it out of a little, some people's reach. But when you get there, it's more of an institutional relatable asset that has those kinds of returns in it. Well, industrial, you know, it lacks the sexiness, right, of, you know, that everybody wants. Well, you know, you got a fencing company that's storing all their fencing, you know, in in the yard and it's a big open warehouse. And what, you know, why do I want to own that? But, you know, for all the reasons that you mentioned, you know, it's these people are there. They're good quality businesses. They're likely not going anywhere anytime soon. They pay their rent. And, you know, I'm really glad that we hit on the topic of triple net because that's an area that very few people are aware of, of how that works. But, you know, being in a triple net and knowing that whatever you collect is yours, you know, and you're not collecting it and holding a little bit back to pay insurance, which when it goes up, it comes out of your pocket or when taxes go up. It's a beautiful thing and and certainly a pretty cool asset class that we see it a lot, you know, in, in our world, but I still think it's a very small amount. Everybody, they just want doors, you know, which is one of my favorite things to hear people promote is how many doors they're invested in. I think it's the, probably the number, you know, it's like our weight, you know, it's the number that we all figured out how to, you know, manipulate in some weird way, but it is, it, industrial really is, is opportunistic. So, you know, let's talk about industrial and take it maybe continuing down that road. So, you know, you mentioned there's an entry point of industrial that's a little bit higher. You know, talk to us a little bit about why that is. Why is it a little harder to kind of break that barrier? And then from a cost standpoint, you know, what drives the cost and, you know, what is the underlying fundamentals of the pricing of, of industrial? Yeah. Well, you know, when you think about a single family home, you know, that's where a lot of real estate investors start is a single family home. You're 1,300 square feet. You know, I would think a small industrial building is 20,000 feet. So if you just look at the cost impact for size, you know, that has some barriers. And really, when you start to think about it, you know, when you're talking about multifamily, you've got a lot of turnover. There's, you know, an average tenant stays in multifamily about 18 months, right? So, you know, you're talking about a lot of turnover. People build their businesses in a certain area. They've got a, an address. I know some people still get mail, right? They've got a location that customers come to. They've got an expectation. They've got all of these things. And so you're building something that is pretty, you know, once you move a tenant in, I mean, we've had tenants in our buildings for 22, 24 years, right? And they've just literally sat there and paid for that thing. And it's very rare that you have someone in a rental home or an apartment that stays that kind of duration. And, you know, the other thing is when you look at that, 
you know, industrial, the other thing that life insurance companies love to be the lenders, they love to pull the money and be the lenders on the industrial. So you're dealing with, you know, fixed interest rates. We just did an assumption on a project in Houston where we've got a 30-year AM and a 10-year fixed at 4% that we assumed from the guy before us, right? So we've got 10 years left on this and getting that kind of fixed rate in multifamily is very difficult, you know? And so there's a lot of those things that just kind of tend to play toward the more institutional buyer. And so it leaves a lot of people looking through the glass going, I would love to be involved in that, but I can't buy a hundred thousand square foot building. And how do I manage that? And how do I deal with that? And that's where, you know, we've kind of stepped in as syndicators and bridged that gap. Yeah. Well, you, you know, the stickiness of these, you know, tenants is huge and, you know, we really haven't seen you know, we've been in an environment where everything's been shooting up like a rocket, you know, in, in the multifamily and in, even on the residential side in, in a lot of markets, you know. And so I think by virtue, it makes some of those tenants a little more sticky, harder for them to move. But, you know, you mentioned this earlier, for 50 bucks, they'll move over the weekend. And, you know, all it takes is one apartment, you know, to see a slight drop in vacancy, you know, to make a slight drop in pricing. And now it's a race to the bottom, you know, because everyone's moving across the street to save 50 bucks. Well, how do they get them back? They got to drop the run a hundred and get them to move back across the street a year later. So, you know, we haven't really seen that play out yet. I know some markets are feeling that, but we're starting to see and hear a little bit of that, that, you know, occupancy rates are getting a little bit lower rent increases. If at all aren't happening in some markets, you're seeing rent decreases. So watch that closely over time. We'll kind of see how that continues to play out. Well, and the other thing is, you know, when you're dealing with industrial, you know, it's very normal to sign a five or a 10 year lease. And even if the market as a whole is going down, the tenant is obligated to take the three to 5% increase that you guys have negotiated. So while it's definitely not as sexy as multifamily and it doesn't have the opportunity to have the spikes that multifamily does, it also is very protected on the downside. It's kind of like, you know, the story of the turtle and the hare. This is the turtle, but it's always churning and it's always growing and it's always increasing. Yeah, no, great analogy and and certainly something to be mindful of. It's in the investment world, especially with tax advantaged accounts, it is a long race. It is a marathon, not a sprint. And yeah, that uh, tortoise and the hare example is, is so spot on. I may borrow that from time to time if that's okay. Yeah, I didn't make it up. <laughs> I suppose you borrowed it yourself. Yeah. Fair enough. Let's take one kind of sidestep, you know, and look a little out, you know, from an interest rate standpoint, you mentioned that, you know, you're used to this, right? Six, 7% interest rates is a normal environment, totally anecdotal opinion on, you know, where are interest rates headed? Do you see a time, you know, where interest rates come back down in a meaningful way? What's your crystal ball telling you? You know, we're kind of positioning ourselves that we may see one more rate hike before the end of the year. If you look historically, every time there's an election year, interest rates drop. To what degree, we don't know. Whoever's in office wants to look as good as possible for homeowners. But, you know, I think that we're kind of back at our normal. We may see 6% again, but I don't think that's going to be in the foreseeable future. We've got inflation that's pushing hard on one side. They just solved the debt ceiling problem, which means that the government's going to be printing a lot more money, which means you're going to see prices continue to inflate. And so you're going to see that struggle of the economy still doing well. They're trying to hold it back. You can't push interest rates much more because then that puts the banks in the position where now all of a sudden they're seeing decreased values because interest rates have gone up and they got notes that they'll have to call. 
And so I think that we're kind of at a place right now that there's likely to be some stability for at least the next 18 months where we're at or just slightly higher. So we've got a spot here where deals are still going to get done. Things are still happening. You know, there's a lot of people that bought in 19, but there's a lot of people that bought in 79. You know, there's a lot of people that bought in 84. You know, those people are now coming to market. I mean, there's always something for sale. And it's just a matter of positioning yourself in a position to take advantage of that and understand that you can make a deal happen. My dad was building and selling houses at 17% interest in the Carter era, right? And there were deals happening at that point. You just have to be in a position where you're not expecting something that that you can't deliver because that's when disappointment comes in and that's where bad things happen to good people. Yeah, well, interest rates are always going to be there and they're always going to be a line item, you know, or variable in the equation. I think the best advice that I, you know, have ever gotten on interest rates is if you don't buy, what's your cost, right, to wait? If you do buy and interest rates go down, which is what, you know, you can always refinance into it. And so you've got you know, people look at interest rates as being this kind of, you know, deal killer. And, you know, the guy that, that gave me that guidance said, it shouldn't be a deal killer at all. It's just a factor. No. Right. You know, you buy the asset, date the rate. You know what I mean? Because if it goes down, you can take advantage of it. But getting long-term financing, I think, is something that a lot of people have lost sight of because things were, you know, if you've got 5% and you see it going to three, gosh, you're going to refi. And then you're thinking about it. Well, why would I lock in at three? Because maybe it's going to go lower. But the reality is if you've got a long window, you've got a lot of runway and you can cover a lot of mistakes. The other thing, too, to remember, Jason, is for the last 50 years, we've seen inflation of at least 3%. So if you're looking at an 8% interest rate, that's going to be fixed. The amount you borrowed is fixed. So every year that, that we continue to inflate and your rent is going up or your income is going up by that 3% margin, you're paying back today's debt with tomorrow's dollars. So every year you hold that asset, it will get cheaper. It will take less of your disposable income because this asset is fixed in its price and it's fixed in its rate. And so you're able to offset a lot of that in arbitrage in its own way because we're not going to stop inflation anytime soon. And we've been for the last 30, 40 years before 2019, we were always sitting at two and a half to three percent inflation. So pulling all that back and going, gosh, I'm now paying back with cheaper dollars makes a lot of sense. I love that point. I've not heard anyone articulate that that well. And it's so true. Dollars go up, but fixed assets and fixed prices get paid. They become a little bit cheaper day by day. Great commentary. Well, let's get you on to the hot seat for just a minute, Shannon, for a quick lightning round. I've got three questions here that are critical. We'll drive through them. Let's start with question number one. What's the best investment you've ever made? The investment in myself. You know, honestly, you can't continue to do anything with yesterday's knowledge. You have to continue to spend time and effort on yourself because it's only through that that you really realize that you can go to the next level, that you can expand your portfolio by expanding your mind. And I think a lot of people overlook that. I love it. Question number two, from an investment standpoint or philosophy, if you had to pick one asset class for the rest of your life, what asset class you invested into? Probably industrial, just because it's one of the most stable real estate classes out there. Okay. Question number three. Now, this is a pivot because I've decided, and it's curiosity getting the best of me. So I'm going back to your sports car. We're going to do this one on the go, and I'll save this for another time. But question number three, what kind of sports car did you get? A Ferrari Spider. Oh, so 488. 
and you're in Boise. So yeah, I just need to come to Boise and get it. That's on right. Thorough. That's right. That's right. Exactly. I love it. And exactly. full depreciation, 100% completely right off your taxes in year one. Yeah. Unbelievable. Because it's a business tool, right? That's right. It's and just it's like I bought a computer or a copier or, you know, I just like to see the IRS agent's face when he looks at, you know, my list of depreciated assets, and, you know, copier, printer, you know, shovel, Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and he or she is perfectly capable of going on to Turo and running it themselves. Exactly. exactly. If they don't believe or understand how the business side of it works. So of all the things that you shared, that one is still sticking with me because it's absolutely brilliant. So thank you for sharing that. Well, Shannon, we'll kind of bring this show to a close. Shannon, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely loved you know, hearing some of your wisdom and thoughts and ideas and strategies on the real estate side and on the tax side. So I want to start by saying thank you for that. Yep. And then you know, we close every show out with the Learn Before You Burn segment. This is the opportunity for you to share you know, what experience that you've gotten with a good lesson, but that experience that may have been painful. You learned it the hard way. And, and so how can we help our listeners maybe get the lesson that came with it, but not have to go through the same experience as you? So we'll bring it to a close, Shannon. What is your Learn Before You Burn guidance for our listeners? You know, 2008 was that for a lot of us. And I think that diversity is important. I think that having some cash on hand, you know, we heard everybody in 2021 saying cash is trash, but the reality is, you know, having adequate reserves and having a thesis that was not an all in on appreciation was probably the biggest life lesson for me and is really what's helped us to build the portfolio that we have now because we have different asset classes in different cities, in different categories, in different stages, so that we've always got something that is holding down the fort, that's paying the bills, that's taking care of things while we do some of the other things that may be perceived as more risky or things like that. So we've really looked at diversifying, though 95% of what we do is still just in real estate. Wonderful advice. Diversity always wins and you know, real estate diversity is incredible. So Shannon, Great job today. Thank you so much for being here. For those of you that are not subscribed, be sure to hit that like and subscribe button. If you'd be kind enough as well to go on and give us a rating, we'd love a five star and help the community of, of folks out there that aren't listening to the show, maybe get some exposure and get some access to it. So we look forward to continuing to provide education on both the investing side, as well as the tax advantage strategy to just simply keep more of what you earn. So Shannon, thanks for being on the All About Alts podcast. We appreciate it. Everyone else, take care. Thanks, Jason. Thank you so much for listening. We hope the information within this podcast has given you the tools that you need to find your way to financial independence. We would love to partner with you on this journey. Text ALTS, that's A-L-T-S, to 407-708-1853 to learn more about how to get started today. Don't forget to follow us to make sure you don't miss a second of content. And we'll see you next week.